0: Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20 year plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear
1: that comes when you have been declared cancer free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope,
0: that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Dr. Amy Rothenberg. Her book, You Finished Treatment, Now What? A Field Guide for Cancer Survivors, is a roadmap for lifestyle and natural medicine to address health challenges that persist after care and to reduce risk of recurrence. She has practiced naturopathic medicine since 1986 and is the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians 2017 Physician of the Year. She was the longtime medical editor for the Institute of Natural Medicine and spearheaded the successful effort to license naturopathic doctors in Massachusetts. She was an early contributor to the Huffington Post and has written extensively on topics in natural medicine since the 1980s. When diagnosed with cancer in 2014, Dr. Rothenberg sought care at a renowned teaching hospital and also added naturopathic doctors who specialize in integrative oncology to create her medical dream team. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. Rothenberg, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's r-e-v-i-v-e wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Dr. Rothenberg. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yes. And I would first love for you to share what led you to your career in naturopathic medicine.
2: Thank you for that opportunity. I was one of those kids who always wanted to be a doctor. But even by the time I was a teenager, conventional medicine had sort of failed my family. My dad died in his sleep of a heart attack when I was 12 and he was in his 40s. My mom followed him quick to the grave with a metastatic breast cancer two years later. So, you know, we kind of grew up a little bit unmoored, if you will. One of my aunts took us in, which was very kind of her. but. My desire to be a doctor was sort of tamped down by that because I did not feel that conventional medicine had really offered our family much of anything.
0: Oh, just to quickly interrupt, I was just curious, how many siblings do you have?
2: Three, and I'm number three of the four. Okay. My older sister died a couple of years ago. Uh, in fact, the book that we're going to talk about that I wrote is dedicated to my sister. Aww. But I went away to college and I, as soon as I got to college, the only classes I wanted to take were the ones that were related to health and healing and human anatomy and physiology and plant medicine class and class on therapeutic nutrition. And I got a, a bachelor's in biology, but one of my professors there thought, you know, you really should go back and consider medicine. That's all you ever want to talk about and think about. One of my, Antioch College has a co-op program. So I took a job, my first job from Antioch when I was 18, almost 19, was in Oregon at the health sciences center there working in a lab. I was curious about that, but I happened upon a household to live with very on the cheap, you know, sharing a house with some other students. It was three people who were in naturopathic medical school. And as soon as I heard what it was, I had never heard of it before. Uh, This, of course, was like in the uh, late 70s. I knew that I had found my calling because it brought together everything about science and biology and chemistry that I loved with all of the healing traditions from times gone by and newly understood aspects of healing related to therapeutic nutrition or medicine. We we didn't call it that then, but the head game and mindfulness kinds of things, exercise. I was very interested in all of these things. So I found my path very early in life. And then I just geared everything I needed to do to get through college, get all my prerequisites done. And I literally graduated from college in, in June. And that very August, I started naturopathic medical school at the National College of Naturopathic Medicine, which is now called National University of Natural Medicine. So For me, you know, that was very, I feel like there was a bit of divine inspiration that led me to that household and those people. There was no internet to look something up like that, you know, Um, and it's been a very good match, good match for my natural interest and curiosity and my people skills and my desire to sort of share information. You know, the general public right now is thirsty for alternatives and, and ways to a fresh perspective, let's say, on their healthcare challenges including cancer, you know, and I am not against conventional care. I had breast and ovarian cancer in 2014. I turned out to have the BRCA mutation after testing negative for twice in the years prior. The tests got better. My genes didn't change. I did chemotherapy, radiation, major surgeries, but all along the way, I used natural and integrative medicine to help enhance efficacy of conventional care prevent side effects, and then address any side effects that arose. And then the topic of my book, which I'm sure we'll talk about, I pivoted to sort of now that I'm done with treatment, what are the things that I can do to help prevent recurrence? And what can I do to address any side effects or help my patients address any side effects that arose from conventional cancer care now that their treatment is over? Perfect. Perfect. So much to know.
0: Yeah. I wanted to go back to your diagnosis how long were you a natural medicine physician when you were diagnosed?
2: Yeah, I graduated from naturopathic medical school in 1986 um, when I was 26 years old. And it was when, almost 30 years later at 54 when I was diagnosed. I found a lump in my breast a couple of months after a normal mammogram. Uh, feeling it, it happened to be January 1st. Sort of happy New Year. the night before my husband and I are avid ballroom dancers. We had been out dancing till four in the morning. I don't think I sat down for one dance. I felt to at the top of my game I certainly looked great. And uh, I found this lump and I thought, oh, this isn't good because I had had, oh, you know, many mammograms and I'd had had was blessed with three children who I each nursed for a couple of years. I knew my breasts pretty well. and I you know, I'd never had had a lump. I'd never had been called back. I'd never had any issues. I did not have fibrocystic breasts. Uh, so as soon as I found the lump, I was like, "Oh!" And knowing my family history, my sister had had breast cancer a number of times. My mother, of course, had died of it. Grandparents, et cetera. So, I was diagnosed then about uh, twenty eight years after after of of practice.
0: Well, you know, I've heard in so many of my interviews and in clients that I work with, people thought they were healthy prior to getting a breast cancer diagnosis or any cancer diagnosis. I'm wondering, did you find that that you were you shocked? Like, wow, I mean, I'm, you know, doing everything I'm supposed to be doing and this happened to me. Do you, do you attribute it to anything? You know, obviously not to blame and I'm I'm not one to, to blame, but to take responsibility for things, for changes that one can make.
2: It's a very excellent question. I did live probably the healthiest lifestyle of anybody you've ever met. The main thing people said to me when they heard I had breast cancer was like, you got breast cancer, you know, um F let's just put leave it at that uh, because they knew how much care I took for myself, meaning daily exercise habit, mindfulness meditation habit, very healthy anti-inflammatory diet, keeping my life low stress, not overworking. Um, taking a small handful of supplements that I was taking that were anti-cancer, et cetera. Sometimes I think the genes we are a product of our genetic inheritance, and then the environmental factors—those we can control and those we can't. Meaning that what we where you are today is based on your genetic what you inherited from your parents, and then early childhood trauma, you know, impacts people. Choices you make that might not have been the best choices with regards to being promiscuous or alcohol or drugs or other risky behaviors. And then there's also things that happen to us that are not our fault. Accidents that happen to us, other kinds of traumatic experiences. Then there's the whole chapter, and there is a whole chapter in my book on this, about our environment and the role that our environment the plastics, the hormone disruptors, many other things in our environment that we we can't control. Many things in our environment we can control and we can do things to enhance our capacity for detoxing naturally, which we can talk about if you like. But there are a lot of things we can't control directly. Air quality, water quality, quality of our food. We can certainly pivot and get into political action, which I'm certainly supportive of to clean up our environment. Uh, But in terms of individual risk, et cetera, it does come back back to a a kind of a factor of all of these different things. In my own case, you know, most of the people in my family that that developed cancers with the genetic BRCA mutation developed them in their 30s or 40s. And I was in my, you know, mid-50s. So to me, I think probably all the things I did helped may not get cancer until that point. And I also know, and this is very important for listeners to appreciate, when we're diagnosed with cancer, if we are, then, I mean, first of all, it's like, welcome to the club, the, no, the one nobody wants to be in. But it's certainly common. American Cancer Society is now almost getting to one in two people are going to have cancer at some point in their lifetime. So it's not like this is a rare illness. But for many of us, You know, if we go into it as healthy as possible, we will be able to handle conventional treatments as best as possible. This concept of prehab, being trying to aim for a normal weight, trying to develop that regular exercise habit, working on tidying up the diet and all of that. You will handle cancer treatments better if you go in without the comorbidities. We know that people who go into cancer diagnosis with diabetes, they don't have as good outcomes. So there are adult diabetes. So there are, to answer your question, yeah, it it feels bad to get a diagnosis. And also afterward, you know, if you don't change anything, what is to prevent it from coming back? That's sort of the topic of my book. There's some truth there. And there's also factors of bad luck, you know, bad genes and the environmental stressors on the body.
0: And I was also thinking about the emotional aspect and and trauma, because I mean, you had a lot of trauma in your life with losing both parents. Was that something that you
2: addressed? Yeah, no, I think of it that way so much. I had a beautiful, beautiful childhood, fun, beautiful nature, felt extremely loved and cared for, certainly sad to lose one's parents when you're growing up, but You know, I was taken in by another family, by my aunt's family, and, you know, I had a pretty smooth path, even though I had that early loss. Was that a factor? I'm sure it was. Do I focus on that? I don't, because I really have had a very blessed path. I mean, I I have. I, I met my husband early. We started blessed with three children, healthy children, a career that's very satisfying, a nice community and a beautiful home and a beautiful office, you know. So I don't focus too much on that. That's my nature. I am optimistic. That's helpful for sure. For sure. Uh, but certainly adverse events of childhood, we know have an enormous impact on health, both cognitive health, emotional health, and and physical health.
0: Yes. Well, I was wanting to know, being a naturopathic physician, was it hard to do treatment, conventional treatment? Were you worried about it or nothing like that?
2: No, no. I had treated cancer patients my whole life as a doctor. I knew the power of natural medicine used in harmony with conventional care to help prevent side effects, address side effects that arise, help enhance efficacy. I knew I was going in young and strong and healthy and that I'd read the statistic about what I had and what are my, you know, five-year survival with and without treatment. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a numbers gal. I read the statistics. I have, my husband is sort of a one-man research phenom. We knew there was no way I wasn't, I was going to get out of not, of doing uh, surgery, chemo, and and turned out in my case radiation. And, you know, I did it I six months after my last treatment. Now, the, the, the kicker of my story was I was found out to have the BRCA mutation. And of course, at that point, they want to also remove your ovaries to prevent ovarian cancer. So the doctor said, well, why don't we wait? This was in July when I'd finished my last radiation treatment. Remember, I found the lump January 1st. I said, why don't you wait till next year? Let your blood counts get back to normal. Then we'll take out your ovaries. And I said to her, we're going to wait till my hematocrit gets to a 36, and then we're going to do the surgery. I didn't want to ruin another year with different different medical visits and all of that. Right. I'm sorry. What, what goes to 36? Oh, wait till my hematocrit, my, my blood level, so that I wouldn't be anemic anymore, because I was somewhat anemic from the chemo. I see. Not very. A little bit. of Let my hematocrit get up to a, a 36, let my hemoglobin get to a 12. And then we'll go for the ovaries. It turned out to be 11 or 12 days after my last radiation, I had a prophylactic hysterectomy where cancer was found on both ovaries. So that was that, that. was more of a shock than anything. And, you know, depending on when you get a diagnosis like that, my sister had had something similar five years before, and the treatment was just complete hysterectomy done because it was early stage, stage one, negative notes, clean margins, you know, they got it all, so to speak. But now it's more like, take no prisoners. How about 12 more rounds of chemo? So my last chemo was January 2nd, 2015, exactly a year. That that was like my bookends. And so that, you know, for me, the challenge there was like, wow, that's really that's really bad. And that's even more, you know, stressful. But I said to my husband at my last chemo, I said, honey, in six months, we're going to do our first triathlon and I'm going to start training for it. As soon as I feel, you know, up to it, I'm going to start walking. Then I'm going to start jogging. Then I'm going to start running and I'm a big swimmer anyway. That's easy. Biking is easy for me. And uh, we did it with our three kids and three siblings and all the partners and little ones. And it was a wonderful testament to sort of the power of conventional medicine used hand in hand with the natural integrative medicine approaches. Right. And and your mindset, that's for sure. You were determined. I was determined. I tried
0: to do one a year since then. One a year sanctioned one, keep me, keep me in shape. Oh, that's fantastic. And how long after your treatment ended for breast cancer, did you do the chemo for the
2: ovarian? It turned out to be a couple of months because, you know, it was about a month before I had the surgery and then they want you to recover from the surgery and then it started right up.
0: Okay. Okay. And what did you, you know, people want to know, what can I do to help my symptoms, my side effects of these treatments? What are some of the things you did?
2: Yeah. One of the things that I did with- I really wanted to prevent peripheral neuropathy, which was part and parcel of one of the chemos that I was doing. So I spoke with and cleared with my oncologist that I would be taking B vitamins and fish oil during my treatments. And that if I had any inkling, uh, any beginning of any kind of neurology, that I would be using the cold packs to the hands and the feet. I never developed that, so I never wound up doing that. But we have a lot of patients who do that. They, you know, Some people will be doing that. cold cap on the head so they keep their hair and the cold pack to the hands and the feet so the chemo doesn't get to the very ends of the extremities to help prevent peripheral neuropathy. I also did a lot to keep my blood counts up through my diet, keep my platelets up through my diet. We know that one thing in particular is that sesame oil will help keep platelets up. Uh, and then in terms of my red blood cells, you know, I was just eating beets and beet greens and leafy greens. I had been a long time ovo lacto-vegetarian, I, during chemo, joined the burger a month club and I had a a beef burger each week just so that I would uh, burger a week club. I should have said each week to kind of keep my red counts up. And then I really worked on my head game. I developed a highlight reel of my life in my own mind that I could run through. I also developed my gratitude Rolodex that I would, while that stuff was dripping in my arm. I would just go through my gratitude Rolodex. Who am I sending thanks to? Who am I sending out positive vibes, prayers to? Who needs some good energy from me? I really was mindful of my sleep. I'm a good sleeper anyway, but the stress and anxiety of treatment can impact sleep. I really doubled down on my sleep hygiene. We know that we can recover best when we are well-rested. I further tidied up my diet, but honestly, it was pretty good to start. Uh, It wasn't like I needed to remove fast food. I wasn't eating refined sugar. I didn't eat any processed foods. I feel very lucky to be able to afford healthy vegetables and fruit and whole grains and, and lean proteins and healthy fats, lots of nuts and seeds. I did some fasting in and around chemo. Uh, We know that when we fast before chemo, a couple days before the day of, maybe the day after, not a water fast, but maybe a six to 700 calorie a day fast. And I should say parenthetically, this is not for everybody. It's not for anybody who's cachectic or losing a lot of weight. It's not for anybody that has a history of eating disorders. But if you go in with some weight to spare and you don't have the history of disordered eating, it's been shown that that kind of diet, that's a vegan 700 calorie diet, helps to weaken cancer cells. Cancer cells need a kind of constant stream of nourishment nutrients. If you weaken them a little bit, the understanding is that the chemo will work better for any cancer cells that are floating around. I did that for maybe two thirds or so of my chemo. I had 18 rounds of chemo total. Toward the end, I didn't feel well enough to do it. I was too tired and I just didn't have the Psychic energy to do that, to measure food and weigh food. And it's, it's a lot of work. Having never dieted in my life, I remember looking at what I was going to eat in the whole day and thinking, like, That's it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I would say for the end of the day, one half of a canned peach in its own juice. And that was sort of my treat at the end of the day. But, you know, there are lots of things that we can do to help, depending on which chemotherapeutic agent somebody's taking. There are particular items, supplements that can be used to help prevent side effects. So that's individualized to the patient and the kind of medicine that they are taking. With radiation, we know that if you're well perfused before you get on the table, you are going to have better outcomes and you're going to protect your underlying organs better. So better perfused means your heart's beating, the blood is moving everywhere. So I tell all my patients who are having chemo, please try to go for a walk. Right before, you know, it can be around the parking lot or a park near the hospital, or if it's bad weather in the hallway of the hospital, try to walk for 20, 30 minutes before you get on the table. It's also very good for stress. It raises your threshold for feeling stress. It dissipates the stress you have. And most importantly, it helps you be best perfused. Also, radiation is quite dehydrating. So we're always mindful of having people stay well hydrated during radiation. And then there are topical things that we use to help keep the areas moist, We know that that can be very important. Um, Those are trade name items that, and and a lot of hospitals use very good products as well. Now we know that that's very important. And then also, you know, I I wrote a whole article, people, if they're interested during my whole treatment, I wrote for the Huffington Post on naturopathic approaches to whatever I was going through at the time. I think that that radiation piece is called positively radiant. And I just go through all the various steps you can take to help enhance the efficacy of radiation and prevent side effects that arise. So someone could just Google positively. Just type in my name, Amy Rothenberg, Huffington Post Radiation, and it will pop up. Perfect.
0: Perfect.
1: The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarbfulcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan and Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com.
0: I'd love to talk about your book because, you know, I talked to so many women and after they're finished with treatment, I know I felt that way. That's for sure. I was so scared. I I was more scared than going through treatment because it was like, now there's no doctors to look after me. And what am I going to do to avoid recurrence? And I knew, I knew I needed to make so many changes, but it's, it could be overwhelming. totally. Oh. Yeah. So your book, You Finished Treatment, Now What? A Field Guide for Cancer Survivors. I mean, perfect name. What led you to write it? And can you just give some some tidbits about it? Like I know, you know, hormone replacement, I'd love you to talk about that because that was a huge thing for me. I had ovarian cancer and had my ovaries removed and all of a sudden I'm getting this patch slapped on my butt and I didn't know anything about it.
2: <laughs> so yeah, you bet. Yeah. Well, what led me to write the book was a just a boatload of patients who come who would come to me and, and in this terrified state and basically say, Okay, you helped get me through the cancer. Now what are we going to do? You know, get me through the conventional cancer care. Now, some of those people were also people who would be living with cancer. In other words, their cancer treatment wasn't really going to be ending, but they there. Some of them are eight, nine, 10 years into living with the cancer, and occasionally they Try a new treatment. Of course, like all doctors, I have had patients who have passed, depending on where when they were diagnosed with what and what their treatments were. But a lot of people come in, you know, because of the early advances in diagnosis now and detection, thanks to things like Pap smears, mammograms, PSA tests, colonoscopy. These are all things that are life-saving because people are diagnosed earlier. And we know that earlier cancers, when diagnosed, they're more treatable. And people often don't die from that thing if they have early non-metastatic illness. So the people who put their head in the sand and don't pay attention to that lump and the pandemic was terrible. People put things off or didn't want to go into hospitals. People diagnosed at, and this has been the evidence for this, people diagnosed at later and later stages having harder times. But for me, the impetus for writing the book was really to answer this question for my patients. So first thing, the first part that I started writing about, even though it's now the in the end of the book, I, I reversed the order when I wrote the book, people were coming in with real world, real life problems that they have had ever since treatment. And it may be because of the cancer itself, but more likely because of the treatment itself. So for instance, people come in, in with the lymphedema, peripheral neuropathy, brain fog, fatigue, getting sick a lot, changes in their desire for intimacy and ability to have satisfaction with intimacy—those are sort of the big, big ones for me that I see in my practice. And you know, I knew from decades of practicing as a licensed naturopathic doctor that there were many natural medicine approaches that could help with these conditions. Whether they arose from chemotherapy or radiation or surgery or something else entirely. Uh, that we had good natural medicine approaches. And so a lot of the, the back of the book is I break it down. You know, Here are the dietary things to think about. Here are the nutritional supplements to consider. Here are the hand-on therapies to work with. Here are things that are important related to exercise and the head game for all of those major categories. And you can find the book anywhere books are sold. And if you have that kind of complaint, you can just literally turn to those pages and read that chapter. And then I understood that the next piece, just like you were saying, Haley, is... The the terror and the angst and the anxiety about what if it comes back? Is there anything I can do to prevent it from coming back? And we know that this book has 340 references. Everything I say in this book, I have tied down to a study in PubMed, which is sort of the clearinghouse for medical studies. I'm not making this stuff up. And people say, well, why doesn't my conventional oncologist tell me all about this? And the main reason is that it's hard to talk about all of that in an 8 or 12 or 15 minute visit have to get through what they have to get through. And the way our medical system is set up and insurance, it does not allow for that kind of time with patients, sadly. Uh, It will change because there's patient demand for it, for sure. And there are many places now in conventional medical world where you can get a physical therapy referral. You can get a referral to a nutritionist. You can get somebody to go talk to or have group therapy. Those are all advances and really good related to cancer survivorship. But we know that the microbiome is such a central part related to cancer's development and metastasis. So what can we do to help create a healthy, robust, diverse microbiome that in turn will help shift the internal environment so you can be less hospitable to further cancer? We know the number one thing for cancer survivors that impacts the length of time before metastatic illness or all cause death is exercise. So I say to people, look, no matter how much you're exercising, you probably should be exercising more. It's the one thing that's, it's so unbelievably researched. People don't believe me when I say this, but there is study after study after study. It doesn't matter which kind of cancer you had, where it was, staging, grading, people who exercise have better outcomes. So then the question becomes for the person, I hate exercise. I don't like sweating. I'm embarrassed to be around people. There's nothing I liked. Some gym teacher mortified me when I was seven, you know, whatever it is, people have a lot of excuses. I'm really interested in helping people get motivated. Sometimes sharing the research and and the knowledge is a helpful piece. Also getting people just to start thinking about it in the first visit. And then maybe the next visit, we're going to talk about the concept of the pedometer on the phone. And maybe you're only getting four or 500 steps a day. Let's see if we can push that to 2000 steps a day. Every little bit helps.
0: No doubt. And you're right. Just chunking it down, just little baby steps to start because you don't feel so overwhelmed. Exactly. Exactly. I just wanted to ask you about lymphedema really quickly because that's a tough one. I've had a lot of people that have had lymphedema and they haven't figured out what to do about it. What do you suggest?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, lymphedema can happen in any kind of cancer. It's not only women with breast cancer, people that have head and neck Cancers can develop lymphedema anywhere in the head, neck, and chest. People, Men with prostate cancer, women with female cancers can develop lymphedema in the lower abdomen and in the legs. So it's not just breast cancer. We know that exercise and yoga have both been associated with positive outcomes for lymphedema. It helps to move the lymph to the places where it can be better processed. So it used to be thought that resistance training or weight training was contraindicated, meaning you shouldn't do it, it would make it worse. But now we understand that improving the musculature in all of the areas helps move the lymph to the better places that it can go. We know that deep diaphragmatic breathing is very helpful for all forms of lymphedema. The cisterna chyli, anatomically is an area in, in the middle of your body that helps to really pump and get the lymph moving, not just in the chest and the arms, but everywhere. So really paying attention and learning some deep breathing exercises and then doing them (laughs) uh, is very important. We know that there are certain herbs that are helpful for lymphedema. Astragalus, some people might have heard of the remedy. astragalus the, the, uh, The herb astragalus can be very helpful. Peony, which is blooming all over my yard right now in the herbal formation, is also shown positive effects for lymphedema. We also know that eating an anti-inflammatory diet and limiting salt can have a positive effect. So an anti-inflammatory diet, I kind of breezed by it earlier, but it's characterized by lean proteins, lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, healthy oils, nuts and seeds, and not that much else. I try to aim for 10 vegetables a day in my diet. I do that by, I always have a vegetable with breakfast, doesn't matter. I've de-identified which foods go with which meal. So I might have, you know, eggs and a piece of toast and a carrot for breakfast. So if I'm having a bowl of oatmeal, I might take a couple stalks of celery with my oatmeal. And then lunch, I usually have a big salad most of the year. A couple months deep winter, not so much. For most of the year, big salad where I have five, six, seven veggies in there, and then one or two with dinner, and I'm, I'm at eight, nine, ten. I mean, I always get don't always get to ten, but I have that goal. In the winter months, I go more into the soups and the stews where I can put Throw in all kinds of veggies in there. So, we know that that can be very helpful. We know that the B vitamins and make, being sure that you're replete in folate and your B vitamins is very, very important for helping to helping with capillary fragility and making the capillaries less likely to leak fluids, including lymph. So, we use that. Um, we, we make sure that people are getting adequate B vitamins either through their diet or, or through supplementation. Selenium is another uh, supplement that has been used. With positive effects, the mineral selenium. There's some good research on acupuncture. Uh, if you can stand being needled, it really doesn't hurt, though. No, well, some, you know, if they hit a little nerve, it can be a little bit tender. Low-level laser therapy is a newer approach. Not every clinic has that equipment, but that's certainly something to consider. Um, I would say that water therapies, you know, aerobics in the water. In our area, they have something called it's just a water aerobics class in the water and and that can be helpful. That helps move, move the lymph. Those are some of the natural medicine approaches that we use. On top of the conventional treatments in terms of decompression, hands-on, uh, wearing the sleeve, there is also some research on using the sleeve prophylactically in women going through breast cancer treatment, using it prophylactically directly after surgery before there's any sign of lymphedema. Those studies are going to be reported out in the coming years, but they Those are clinical trials right now.
0: Oh, great. That's really helpful. Thank you. And I just want to ask you about hormone replacement because, you know, it's tricky if you have breast cancer. Doctors say do not have any hormone replacement. What is your stance on hormone
2: replacement, especially if you've had a total hysterectomy and... I, th- I want to just correct what you said. I, I don't think that's true. I think that that's true for women that have estrogen receptor positive breast cancers. In those women who don't have estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, hormone replacement is, is, is not as much of an issue. We know that hormone replacement at around the time of menopause helps... And this is not related to cancer. This is just a general statement because all of you have sisters, wives, p- mothers, partners. All the whole world of hormone replacement has been... Looked at a lot and the the research swings. Don't do any for anybody ever. Everybody should be on this always. You know, so it's like between these arcs. When they came out in the 1960s and 70s, everybody wanted to be on it because it was like the fountain of youth. Your skin stayed nice, the breast didn't sag, the sex drive was intact, the vagina didn't shrink and get dry. Uh, but there was a direct increase in breast cancer incidence. When they then created and recreated the formulations to, be, to not just be solely estrogen, but to be balanced with other hormones, they understand now that that is not going to lead so much to breast cancer incident incidences. And we know that hormone replacement will help to keep the bones good. This is not related to cancer. It helps with prevention of cognitive decline, which is enormous and all the other benefits I already mentioned. But the prevent, and, and the other huge one is prevention of cardiovascular disease. If you look at the statistic of cardiovascular disease, women, you know, are kind of low and men are going like that. As soon as they hit menopause, women catch up to men. But estrogen replacement therapy in unrelated to cancer will help to prevent that to a large degree. Estrogen keeps the vessels, vessels more, you know, more um, uh, stretchy so that they don't get the... Problems That you have with cardiovascular disease in terms of breast cancer and hormone replacement or ovarian cancer for people that are estrogen receptor positive, obviously they're not going to be a good candidate for estrogen replacement therapy. They can use topical estrogens in the vaginal area to prevent urinary tract infections, painful intercourse, shrinkage of the tissue. We also encourage women to lubricate, of course, during if they're having penetrative sex. But more important than that is all the other times of the week that you're not having penetrative sex. And a lot of people are not having that at all, of course. But we encourage moisturization, both externally in the labia and internally. There's some wonderful suppositories that are just made of a little bit of olive oil, a tiny bit of beeswax, and some uh, calendula or other soothing botanicals that are nice to put inserting and then using topically. I just have people use coconut oil. But we know now that using topical estrogens will not put somebody at further risk of recurrence locally. Now, for somebody in your situation, Haley, where you had a complete hysterectomy because of ovarian cancer and you were premenopausal, they wanted to put you on hormones. And I think for the main issue there is that All formulations, products, and ways of taking are not created equal. And some people need to spend three, four, five, six months figuring out the best formulation for them. It is a bit of trial and error, unfortunately. It's not one size fits all. That kind of hormone replacement is essential because it helps to prevent... The big three heart disease, osteoporosis, and cognitive decline, and also helps in all the other ways that we already described. There are natural medicine ways to help support healthy hormones. All your hormones are connected, they're all related. All hormones in your body start with a cholesterol backbone. So, and then other molecules are added to it to make other hormones. So, we want to ensure that people are getting healthy fats in their diet through lean proteins, olive oil, coconut oil, et cetera. And we want to be sure that people aren't, cholesterol isn't going so low you know, on a statin such that they're not gonna be able to make any of their hormones in the right amounts and right balance. There are herbal things that we do for symptoms related to low estrogen in terms of hot flashes, sleep disturbance, cognitive disturbances, but we have to be careful. you know, Some of the estrogen precursors in somebody who's estrogen receptor positive I wouldn't encourage somebody to take, you know, like the black cohoshes and things like that. But let me put in a, a plug for soy. Soy has gotten maligned in the cancer world. Soy is a uh, estrogen precursor. The, the thing with soy is that you should include soy in your diet at least a few times a week. It basically, if the estrogen is too high, it helps bring it down. If it's too low, it helps bring it up. It's not, uh, not going to cause breast cancer. It helps, it gets on the binding sites For estrogen. So it prevents you from getting too much estrogen in to a point, but it's not something that people should avoid when they are going through conventional cancer care or afterward, whether or not their estrogen receptor status is. That's really good to know. You're right, because people
0: are really concerned about that. Right. So I appreciate you addressing that. And just last, before we get into random round, is there any last piece of advice you want to leave with the audience?
2: I think the the last piece of advice has to do with self-agency. I think that we are all able to make changes and take some responsibility for our health. And there is a whole chapter in my book, it's called How to Talk So Your Oncologist Listens and Listen So Your Oncologist Talks. And it's basically a pep talk about self-agency. I think that people who go in informed and curious and open, you know, always bring somebody with you, tape record the thing, if your doctor allows it, take notes, ask questions. I think this is the best way to ensure that your doctor knows that you're paying attention and you're not just going to go blindly to whatever they say. You're going to ask questions or it's okay to say, you know, I'm going to take a couple of days and think about that. I'm not sure that's the direction I want to go. You're allowed to do that. Right. So I'm a big fan of, of doctor, patient, education. I as the, the meaning of the word doctor from doser is teacher. Every doctor that I go to, I want them to be able to tell me exactly how this chemo is going to work, you know, or tell me exactly why I need this scan at this interval. Is this your opinion? Is this research? You're allowed to ask questions like that.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point because I know a lot of People say, oh, their doctor doesn't have time. They don't want to answer these questions. But if if they're not open to answering your questions, then maybe they're not the right doctor for you, right?
2: Yeah. I would also lean into the other services that your clinic or doctor provides. A lot of times a, a cancer social worker can be very helpful to help navigate a system, especially around finances, around childcare, around rides to radiation. There's a lot of people don't have to go it alone. That's, I think, I mean, more and more, unless you live in a very rural, rural place where I imagine it is much harder. But if you're in a small town, a village, near a city, like these are services that you should be able to access, hopefully.
0: Yes. So are you ready for Random Round? I am. Fill in the blank. Okay. Freedom to you is? A day without anything on the calendar. The last show you binged
2: and loved? Um, The last show I binged and loved was The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel. So great. When you are feeling afraid, what do you do? Try to find my husband and have a talk, get a hug, and lay out my fears and anxieties. If you could have a
0: one-hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and
2: why? Uh, I guess at the moment it would be with Bonnie Raitt. I've just been listening to her new music and I'm so impressed with the longevity of her career and her her energy and her commitment to progressive causes. And I would just love to sit down and have a cup of tea with her.
0: What is your favorite go-to snack? Uh, peanut butter and apple.
2: Almond butter and apple. Yeah.
0: What is one simple thing that brings you joy?
2: Gardening. What's on your nightstand? You finished treatment now, what a feel guide for cancer survivors. Uh, right now, uh, Damon Copperfield is on my nightstand by Barbara Kingsolver. Uh, and also, I just finished reading the book Horse, which I highly recommend. It's so good. And I also have a book of Psalms on my nightstand. Nice. What is your favorite form of exercise? Rollerblading and ballroom dance. I have two. They're tied.
0: What's one thing you're really grateful for in your
2: life right now? My three amazing, healthy, incredible 30-something-year-old kids. And lastly, where can people find you if they want to learn more? We are going to put it in the show notes. So... Okay. Yeah. I I sent Haley a whole list of places you can find me. You can sign up for our newsletter and you can follow me on social media. My website related to the book is called dramyrothenberg.com and it's just D-R-A-M-Y Rothenberg, one word, uh, dot com. And I love to get feedback. And if anybody reads the book, you know, if you have feedback, you have questions, you can write to me through the website. You can put a review on Amazon that that gets this information in front of more people's eyes, the more reviews there are there. So I always appreciate a, a review on Amazon, uh, especially if you like the book. If you didn't like it, well, <laughs> probably not as much. <laughs> <laughs> I think people are going to like it.
0: And Dr. Rothenberg, thank you so much. You addressed so many things topics that people ask about all the time. So I really, really appreciate having you on and I enjoyed our conversation. You bet. Thank you so much for having me. Have me back sometime. We can dig into some other topics if you want. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.